Okay, everybody, we have made it to Wednesday. It is Wednesday, August 17th. I'm Moshe Wanunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We're trying to read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. It's a special Wednesday today where you will get two editions of the podcast. So stay tuned later this afternoon, just around noon Eastern time for our latest drop. It's a conversation with former CIA director Michael Morell about all things Afghanistan. We are marking this week the one-year anniversary of the withdrawal from Kabul, the Taliban takeover of the Capitol. Morell will take us inside the White House Situation Room, explain how a president makes a call to assassinate a terrorist leader. Morell was there with Obama when they took out Osama. It is a fascinating approach. He takes us through the process. Some of you may remember last week I had Morell on to talk China. This is our second part of the interview on Al-Qaeda. Again, that's later this afternoon. But let's get to the latest on this Wednesday for the morning edition of your podcast. We have a lot we're watching, including Congresswoman Liz Cheney going down to defeat last night in her primary race in Wyoming. We'll also have the latest from Alaska, where Sarah Palin is trying to make her comeback and make it to Congress. We had a major ruling on Tuesday from the FDA in regards to hearing aids, making those cheaper. I'll tell you all about that, as well as a new technology that has been invented that brings closed captioning to the deaf in the real world in their conversations. It's a really fascinating breakthrough. Out West will tell you about the states that are gonna see major cuts to their water supply. This is because of the record low levels of the Colorado River. And there's some new technology that scientists are using to look for hospitable planets out there in outer space that might be able to support us one day. Okay, let's begin here with the primaries that were held last night. We're nearly done now with primary season as the two parties choose their candidates for the general election this fall. We're just about 12 weeks out from the general election. Wyoming and Alaska are two of the last states to go here. We'll start in Wyoming where the prominent anti-Trump Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney You've been hearing about her, seeing her most recently in the January 6th committee. Well, as expected, she went down to defeat on Tuesday night in her Republican primary by a wide margin. It was widely expected that Cheney, she's been in Congress for about six years, would go down to defeat against her opponent, Harriet Hageman. She's a lawyer who Trump endorsed, who is very, very much pro the former president. Cheney has been very outspoken about her criticism of Trump, and that is a difficult thing to do, as she has found out, in a state like Wyoming, where the former president has a wide, wide margin of support. Cheney, you might recognize the last name, is the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney. And both Cheneys, they're a big name in Wyoming, actually, by the way, uh, little known fact. Dick Cheney, his name was initially pronounced Cheney, but people kept mispronouncing it Cheney, so he just went with it. Take that to the dinner table tonight. The family's been very, very popular in Wyoming for many, many years, and that was until last year when Liz Cheney voted to impeach Donald Trump. She said she needed to take a stand against him. She found what he did in the lead up to and in the aftermath of January 6th completely unacceptable. And so she took a stand here and she is losing her seat over it. The former president remains very popular in the state. In fact, Wyoming, one of the largest victories for him in both 2016 and 2020. And the former president has made it his mission to take out all 10 Republicans. There were 10 Republicans in the House that voted to impeach him. Trump has made it his mission to take them all out. Cheney is now the fourth one to go. Four others decided they didn't even want to bother with a primary race dealing with this. And so they retired. That makes eight. That now leaves two who will likely make it through to November. We will watch their general elections. But Cheney's loss here means that eight out of the 10 will not be in the next Congress. This, of course, helps reinforce Trump's hold on the party. He remains popular. 
polls show that more than half of Republicans say today they would still support him for president should he run again in 2024. That is looking pretty likely, but we are watching all these investigations, which I'll tell you about slightly later on the podcast. For her part, Cheney, she has some unfinished business. She has about six months left in Congress. Remember, the new Congress will take over January 3rd, so she will be a lame duck. That's the term they use to refer to people who have lost their seat but remain in office until the next person takes over. She will continue to sit on the January 6th committee, which continues its investigation this fall. We'll see what their report comes up with. She will be a part of those hearings. She says she has no regrets here. She had to stand by her morals, her ethics, and her belief that the former president has no place in the future of the Republican Party. Her primary voters in Wyoming thought otherwise. The question now remains for Cheney. Will she run for president in 2024? There's been a lot of chatter about it. No firm indications yet. But what's interesting here is given what we've seen about the state of the Republican Party, can Cheney really find an avenue here in a Republican primary? Of course, there's the alternative, which is she runs as an independent but we all know the difficulty of running as an independent for president. Meanwhile, in the other races we're watching far up north in our biggest state, Alaska, which by the way is four times the size of California, it is huge. If you've ever seen maps where Alaska, you can Google this, where Alaska is placed on top of the lower 48, you see how large the state is. Anyway, I digress. The centrist Republican, Lisa Murkowski, she's in the Senate. She's pro-choice. She votes more often with Biden than against Biden. She's been critical of Trump. It looks like she's making it through her primary. She will face a general election um, in the fall. They have a unique system, which I'll tell you about in a second here in Alaska, which is it might explain why you're seeing Murkowski sneak through while a Cheney didn't make it through in Wyoming. The other race we're watching is the congressional seat. There's one congressional seat in Alaska. Sarah Palin, the former VP nominee for McCain back in 08. You might remember her. She was the state's governor. She actually resigned due to a scandal back there more than 10 years ago. She went up against another Republican, Nick Begich, and a Democratic state rep. Uh, her name is Mary Peltola. All three are vying for the congressional seat that was left open by the congressman, Don Young, who passed away earlier this year. Now, as I said, Alaska has a unique system. They have a system called rank choice voting. It basically allows voters to rank their choices in order of preference, regardless of party. So you can put a number one next to somebody, a two, a three, and then you get a second choice and a third choice. And so they go through this rank choice system. They take the top two and then all the lower candidates, they look at those people's second choices. In particular, it's going to have ramifications here in this congressional seat. Begich and Palin are both Republicans. Their voters are each going to have second choices. So it's going to take a while, several weeks, maybe a month to find out the results here and whether the one and only Sarah Palin will be headed back to Washington. And since this is an open seat, they're going to go through this all over again in November. And so we'll continue to watch Alaska and see how this whole situation unfolds. Okay, back in Washington, the FDA announced Tuesday that it will allow some hearing aids to be sold over the counter. The goal here is to widen their availability and help bring the cost down for hearing aids and encourage the development of better devices. It's actually estimated that 40 million adults in the US, that's more than 10% of all Americans, have trouble with their hearing. Those are numbers according to the FDA, but only 6 million of those 40 million actually use a hearing aid. When we look at adults over the age of 70 with hearing loss, only one in three over the age of 70 have worn a hearing aid. The big issues here are high costs, challenges with access to them, and social stigma, which discourage people from wearing hearing aids. You know, they're embarrassed to wear them in public. The thing the FDA is focused on here is cost. These devices can cost thousands of dollars, sometimes as much as six or $7,000, and are often not covered by insurance. This new rule, by the way, that allows them over the counter, this is for anyone over the age of 18 with mild to moderate hearing. It's expected to take effect in 60 days. So in October, we should see this go into effect. 
I have heard from some hearing experts in my direct messages on Instagram that you're concerned that people will not get tested and will not have the proper devices. So that's something people need to keep in mind. You can head over to hearingloss.org for advice and I will be sure to keep everyone updated on developments here. Okay, a couple updates here today on the various investigations into former President Trump and his allies. We've been watching a number of these state cases and federal cases. First, let's start in New York, where there is a criminal case into potential illegal practices by the Trump Corporation. This is Trump's uh, private company that he's been in charge of for decades. Well, Trump's longtime money guy, the former CFO, Alan Weisselberg, he's been with the company for nearly 50 years. He's expected to plead guilty as soon as tomorrow in criminal charges. This is part of an indictment by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Weisselberg, as I said, was with the company for nearly 50 years. He's involved in all the most senior financial transactions of the company. He's expected to be sentenced to as many as five months in jail as part of a plea agreement. He's pleading guilty here. Sources tell NBC and the New York Times that Weisselberg is expected to cooperate again the Trump organization itself, but there is no indication he will cooperate in any investigations into the former president specifically. He appears to be staying pretty loyal there. That's according to most accounts I've read so far. Now to the crime, Weisselberg and the Trump organization were charged as part of what prosecutors describe as a, quote, off-the-book scheme. It basically allowed a number of senior officials in the president's company to avoid paying taxes for 15 years. Weisselberg, he's 74 now, he's accused of avoiding paying taxes on up to $1.7 million of his income. What's notable here, as I mentioned, is that Weisselberg was in many meetings. He has access to all the major documents. I mean, this guy was the finance guy. If you ever knew or were dealing with the Trump Corporation through the years, you were dealing with the money guy, Weisselberg. So he could face a number of months here in prison as part of this plea agreement. But so far, it appears that he's staying loyal to the former president himself. Meanwhile, another case we've been watching is the case down in Georgia. This is the case where the officials down there are looking into former President Trump and his allies for potentially illegally intervening in the 2020 election, at least when it comes to Georgia's vote count. Trump's former campaign attorney, the one and only Rudy Giuliani, will be taking the stand today. We will see what he has to say and what he pleads the fifth to. Uh, it'll be something close to watch. Remember, he was the president's attorney, so he's going to try to claim that some of the stuff that they're asking him about is privileged information. Giuliani... Giuliani has been told that he's a target in the investigation, which means he faces potential charges here and potential prison time down the road. So this is very important testimony to watch today. Specifically, among the things they're looking at is, did Giuliani say things and do things he knew might be illegal, might be untrue, as he tried to push state officials in Georgia back just after the 2020 election to try to change the results? We've told you about this. Trump and his associates had numerous interactions with Georgia officials, most of them Republican officials, including that infamous phone call Trump made to the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, saying, find 11,780 votes. Implication there, find me those votes so I can win your state. Officials down there are also looking at a plot that Giuliani was involved with to send fake Georgia electors to Washington. And separately, we have one more update for you on the federal investigation. So we told you about the New York criminal one, the Georgia criminal one. Now to the FBI criminal investigation into those classified documents. This was the reason why they uh, had that search warrant on Mar-a-Lago last week. The FBI, remember, removed dozens of boxes, including nearly a dozen sets of classified and top secret documents. Well, we learned yesterday that federal investigators have now interviewed the former Trump White House counsel, that's Pat Cipollone, and his former deputy, Pat Philbin, as part of their inquiry into the storage of those classified records. Again, we don't know how this ends. They might have just been recovering the documents. There might not be charges here, 
But the FBI continues its investigation. The DOJ continues its investigation into the classified documents. And that's all separate from the January 6th investigation, of which we didn't have any updates for you on Tuesday. But we'll continue to monitor that, as well as all these other investigations, on the Instagram feed 24-7. Okay, I want to head out west here to the story I told you about. The federal government on Tuesday announced new water allocation reductions, including a nearly 25% cut in the water supply to the state of Arizona. This announcement should have been no surprise to a number of people out west because it came as a number of states out there along the Colorado River have officially missed a federally imposed deadline to develop a new water sharing agreement. And so the feds came in and said Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming, Arizona, California, and Nevada, all those states that are served by the nearly 1,500-mile Colorado River you now need to face some water restrictions. More than 40 million people are served by the river. That is at some of its lowest levels in recorded history. In June, the U.S. Interior Department gave the states 60 days to agree on a new allocation plan to reduce water consumption by 15%. It turns out the states could not come to an agreement, and so Uncle Sam stepped in on Tuesday. The region is facing a 20 years and counting drought. It's the worst in centuries. In fact, some scientists calculate that this is the worst drought in more than a thousand years in the region. I posted photos on the Instagram feed actually of boats that once sank years ago now being discovered as these lakes completely dry up. So back to the water restrictions, Arizona will face some of the largest cuts, about 21% of the state's yearly allotment of the Colorado River water will be cut. Nevada will see an 8% cut. And the country of Mexico, which is also served by the river, will see a 7% cut. Incidentally, California here will not see specific cuts related to the Colorado River, but they are facing a number of restrictions in the state right now, as many of you can attest to. One of the issues we're watching here is Lake Powell. It sits on the Arizona-Utah border, and it is getting to such a low level that should it continue to dry up here, it might not be able to support the hydroelectric power generation. This is a major power plant in the area as the water continues to get lower. So the feds here are trying to step in now that the states couldn't come to an agreement and try to uh, cut water usage to ensure power generation continues. By the way, for those of you asking why Arizona here is seeing the most significant cuts, it actually goes back to an agreement decades ago between Arizona and California in exchange for a deal that allowed Arizona to get more water initially. They agreed to a scenario where if water got cut, they would get most of the cuts and California would get the priority. Now, Arizona does have some underground reserves from the Colorado River, but this is going to be a long-term issue here out west, and we saw the first indication of what this long-term drought is really gonna to mean to water consumption. Unfortunately, some of the people facing the most significant issues here are gonna be farmers and ranchers. Now to something Democrats hope will get us on the road to helping to stop climate change, or rather at least slow it. There was a major ceremony on Tuesday with President Biden signing the long-awaited bill to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in addition to reducing health costs and raise taxes on corporations. This is the bill Democrats are calling the Inflation Reduction Act. It's more than a $700 billion bill. It has been part of on-again, off-again negotiations, and the president and Democrats are excited about this going into law here with 12 weeks before midterms to be able to showcase to voters that they are getting things done. Here was what President Biden had to say on Tuesday. This bill is the biggest step forward on climate ever, ever, and it's going to allow going to allow us to boldly take additional steps toward meeting all of my climate goals and the ones we set out when we ran. The bill invests $370 billion in spending and tax credits that's in low emission forms of energy to help fight climate change. 
Now, while the bill does not require companies to reduce their emissions, it does include these tax incentives for firms to invest in renewable energy, as well as rebates for people who buy electric cars or invest in energy efficient improvements to your home, like uh, energy efficient windows, etc. Though on the car front, I have told you that it might be a while till you see those tax credits because uh, one of the provisions in there, again, to help American manufacturing is that batteries must be made in America. But right now, most batteries are made in China. So it's going to be a while until the electric vehicle market gets up to par here and we're able to use all these tax credits. Beyond the climate, this bill also extends federal health insurance subsidies, allows the government to negotiate prescription drug prices for seniors on Medicare. It is expected to reduce the federal budget deficit by about $300 billion over 10 years. Regardless, Republicans have said this is too much spending, and they unanimously, if you remember in the last couple of weeks, voted against this in the House and Senate. By the way, former President Obama does not tweet often about things in D.C. these days, but he did take a moment on Twitter yesterday to give his former vice president some props, tweeting in response to a Biden announcement about the law. Obama tweeted, this is a BFD, an obvious reference to Biden being caught on that hot mic back in 2010, saying Obamacare was a big effing deal. Uh, so Obama was having some fun here returning the favor to his vice president, saying this bill is a BFD. Though Obama didn't use the full F word there, just the letter. With all this climate news in mind, I guess we should all be looking to other planets potentially, and that's something NASA is working on. Axios is reporting that scientists are entering a new era here of space science and space discovery. While previously they were just looking for other planets, they now have powerful enough telescopes to see from here and from outer space if these planets can support human life. So for the past 30 years, researchers have focused on finding what's called exoplanets. These are planets outside our solar system. More than 500 of them have been discovered since the first one back in 92, about 30 years ago. Thanks to these sensitive telescopes on Earth and in space, astronomers have had a chance to learn more about how these planets formed and their odds of habitability. Through the telescope, they can look at things like chemical composition, but it's not so easy. The scientists also tell Axios that the way life evolved here on Earth is very complex, and it's difficult to know beyond chemical composition what else was important to the development of life on this planet. Many scientists think that actually the first life on Earth may have developed in tide pools governed by the movements of the moon around our planet, so it's possible that a moon is also essential to developing life. I promise to keep you updated on all of this, and when tickets are available to these exoplanets. But first, we'll have some exciting news later this month as NASA makes its first trip back to the moon in decades. Look out for the launch on August 29th. Should the weather permit, we'll be sending an unmanned capsule back to the moon, back around the moon, and pending all goes well, we will be putting humans in that capsule in the next two years. It'll be the first time we're going back to the moon since the 1970s. Okay, speaking of space, someone key to our exploration is Elon Musk. But here on Earth, specifically in a court in Delaware, I wanted to check in on that fight between Musk, who is the uh, CEO of SpaceX and Tesla, and Twitter, the thing he was going to buy that he chose not to buy, and now they're in court all over it. We learned this week that Twitter is actually trying to get its hands on Musk's text messages as part of the $44 billion legal battle with the billionaire. That's all according to new court documents that were filed this week on Monday. Twitter said it wants a search conducted of all of Musk's text messages during the relevant period for material related to its lawsuit. So this basically would take us from April through July in the time period Musk said he would buy Twitter. They said no. Then they said yes. Then he said great. Then he said not so great, and he pulled out. And now Twitter is suing, remembered Musk, 
over this whole deal saying that he did not make good on this deal. The hope Twitter has is that these text messages are going to show that Elon Musk was never serious about actually buying Twitter and that he was just using the whole idea of too many bots, too many fake accounts on Twitter as an excuse. Musk and Twitter have been going back and forth for weeks in this Delaware court where you see this lawsuit happening about what is applicable to the lawsuit and how much access they'll have to one another's documents. Yesterday, Musk actually got his own win as a judge ordered Twitter to hand over documents related to Musk's quest for information on spam accounts. This is something that we suspected might come out in this trial. Twitter has been saying it's only a small percentage of accounts. Musk claims it's much larger. It's the excuse he uses for not buying it, even though it's clear that there's evidence that he didn't want to buy Twitter for other reasons. The bottom line here is that Musk, at a minimum, based on the deal that he signed with Twitter, will owe Twitter at least a billion dollars for backing out of the deal. But Twitter's trying to hold him to that $44 billion number. And so we will see where the agreement ends, somewhere in between. Musk, in the end, will pay somewhere between $1 billion and $44 billion, depending on how all of this unfolds in the Delaware courtroom. And I want to end here with some good news. We talked earlier in the podcast about hearing aids, but those who are completely deaf and can't really use hearing aids, there might actually be some hope for them as well. I was reading this week about a new company that's created a new augmented reality spectacle that places subtitles on conversations happening in the real world. So think about these as glasses you would put on and you're looking over at a conversation and you literally can read the words being said uh, in within the glasses, sort of like putting closed captioning on television. This is all the brainchild of a guy named Dan Scarf. He tells the story of his 97-year-old grandfather sitting quietly in a room on Christmas Day, surrounded by his family, but unable to join the conversation because of his hearing loss. Scarf tells multiple media outlets he felt so bad, but then thought, wait, my grandfather can watch TV with subtitles. Why can't we subtitle the world for him? So Scarf and his company, which is called InReal, the letter N-R-E-A-L, have developed a pair of glasses that use Amazon Alexa software to turn incoming audio into closed captioning. It took the team just about six months to launch what they call X-ray glasses, X-R-A-I, X-ray glasses. While the software cannot cope yet with people speaking over one another, which depending on your living room or mine is often, Scarf says that it is just the beginning. And while this right now captures one-to-one conversations, he is hoping to continue to improve this technology. They're currently running a pilot for these glasses out of the United Kingdom. They're available for just under $500. You can find out more if you Google these X-ray glasses, X-R-A-I glasses. I want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. A reminder, again, we will be dropping another edition later this afternoon at about 12 p.m. Eastern time with the former CIA director talking all things Al-Qaeda, Afghanistan, Situation Room. And we also get into a good conversation about journalism and intelligence work and how the two are pretty similar. I, of course, was captivated by this. And Morell, Mike Morell, the former CIA director who I speak to, who spent years in the CIA and is now an analyst for news organizations, including CBS, has an interesting uh, perspective on this as well. So stay tuned for that. We'd love your feedback on that, as well as this podcast, how we're doing. Please email me over at podcast at mo.news. A reminder to subscribe to our newsletter, monews.bolton.com, and follow me on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. I'd be so grateful, by the way, if you guys could all follow or subscribe to the show on the podcast app you're listening to us on and leave us a review. Every review matters and helps us continue to grow and move up the rankings in the charts. I'll see everyone back here later this afternoon for the second edition today, as well as tomorrow morning.